Welcome to the Dipshit Files, episode 75. I'm Mr. Scriptkeeper. And I'm Mrs. Scriptkeeper. And oh boy, we got true crime. Yes, we do. Well, tell us about what today's show is. Well, today's episode, we're covering a case that I learned about years ago. Okay. And it's always baffled me because it remains unsolved. It remained unsolved for decades. And essentially, it's still unsolved technically. Okay. Um, but not really. Hmm. So I used to be a Girl Scout. Uh, I was a brownie, mm-hmm. and then I was a Girl Scout, and and you know I did all the Girl Scout things. Right. So when I learned about this case uh, in my research for true crime, it became more personal. It it did. It fascinated me because I remember Girl Scout camp and that sort of stuff. So mm-hmm. I looked into it, and uh, I want to tell you the story. Ah, it's gonna be dark as fuck, isn't it? It is. It's uh, kids stuff. Uh, well, you've been warned. Let's look at the file. I'm not sure how many of you have heard this case before, but given the newest information that's come out about it, I figured it was time for us to discuss it. So we're going to jump into the stories of the Oklahoma Girl Scouts, uh, Michelle, Denise, and Lori. The Girl Scouts of America is a youth organization for girls in the U.S. was founded by Juliet Gordon Lowe in 1912. The Girl Scouts have always prided themselves in teaching young girls fundamental values in life through experience. Now, as many of you may know, the Girl Scouts are well known for their cookies. Cookies! And typically the girls have a goal to sell as many cookies as they can in order to meet their goal to attend summer camp once a year. Little capitalist pig dogs. And that was no different for these three young girls in 1977. Right. Now, Heather Michelle Gaussi was nine at the time. She was a camp veteran. She had gone the year before and was excited for her next summer excursion. She'd be spending the whole two weeks away from her parents in the woods with friends. For Michelle, being outdoors was her happy place. She loved plants and tended to several of her own in her own house. She had her own little plant collection. Nice. In fact, she loved her plants so much, she made her mother promise to take care of her little plants as if they were her own while she were away at camp. Michelle was very athletic and just loved to be outdoors, so going to camp was a perfect opportunity for her to get in some outdoor exploring. Hmm. However, for 10-year-old Denise Milner, it was a completely different story. Denise was attending her first year of camp, and she was actually quite nervous about it. She was a straight-A student and at the time had been accepted to Carver Middle School in Tulsa, Oklahoma, a school designated for exceptional children. Now, some days she would be excited about her new experiences, but most often she just felt nervous and anxious. She'd never been away from her mother or younger sister Kathleen before. Denise only decided to try camp this year because she and a group of her friends decided to go together, but... After working hard boosting her cookie sales and securing her spot, her friends backed out at the last minute, and Denise was left to go all by herself. So days before she was expected to leave, Denise decided she no longer wanted to go. She was just too nervous, and she actually had a feeling of dread. Now, she didn't know if she would enjoy camp or even make any friends, but with some push from her mom, 
she reluctantly boarded the bus that fateful day. Lori Farmer was a bit different from Denise and Michelle. Lori, she had a couple of options for summer, and she was torn between attending Girl Scout camp or the one hosted by the YMCA. She couldn't choose, so ultimately her mother, Sherry, decided for her. Hmm. Lori was one of five children and was the youngest child at camp that year at just eight years old, and she didn't mind being away from her family. She'd done this before and loved the feeling of independence and liked to make new friends. Now, unbeknownst to the girls from Tulsa, camp would not be the same this year. Now, the camp's named Camp Scott. That's the name of the camp. And it had been in operation since 1928. Now, Camp Scott was nestled inside a Mays County about two miles from Locust Grove, and the area was perfect for summer camp. It was quiet, uh, not a big, booming city. Plus, Tulsa Girl Scout headquarters was only 50 miles away. On June 12, 1977, several buses full of giggling, excited girls passed through the gates, ready to begin their two weeks of independence and growth. The counselors were ready with an evening filled with fun activities to get the girls adjusted and to cure any homesickness that may arise. However, the forecast had other plans. Hmm. Rather than s'mores around a campfire, the Girl Scouts were met with dark, looming rain clouds, an omen of what was to come. After dinner, counselors rushed the girls to their tents where they officially met their bunkmates. The tents were made to look like cabins. The frame and platforms were wooden, but the top was draped with a canopy with only a flap acting as a door. Each tent was equipped with four cots, for e one for each camper. No electricity, no real security from the woods, but this is the way it always was. The tents were arranged in a sort of semi-circle, uh, with number eight being the last one. Number eight was part of the Kiowa unit and the furthest from the counselor's tent. Now, it was approximately 80 yards away from the counselor's tent. Hmm. It was inside tent number eight where Michelle, Denise, and Lori became quick friends in their short time together. While the rain poured outside and the girls wrote a letter home documenting their arrival and feelings at that time before they gathered around for story time. Denise had been upset. Camp was not turning out to be as fun as she thought, so she hmm. begged the counselor to let her call her mom to go home. Now, the counselor was able to calm the young girl down and convince her to phone her mother in the morning and see if she still felt the same. And Denise agreed. She, she was fine. She, she obliged. As the night was winding down, a counselor from another unit was inside her cabin when something caught her eye in the forest around them. There was a really dense forest um, behind the tents. Now, what she had seen, she seen some movement, and she also saw a dim light. And it seemed to move further to the end of the camp near the Kiowa unit. Now, it wasn't uncommon for counselors to be out in the night, especially during the first night of camp. The camp was bursting with life and the girls were all excited and the counselors actually had to settle them down and keep them inside their tents. Everything seemed to finally settle down and quiet down and the counselors too turned in for the night. Now, around midnight, however, Counselor Carla Wilhite uh, was awakened by the sound of giggling campers near the bathroom. So she got out of bed and escorted them back to her tent. 
Then again, around 1.30 in the morning, between 1.30 and 2, she was awakened again by giggling, but this time it was coming from tent 6. Counselor Carla shined her flashlight over to the tent and told the girls to go to bed, <laughs> but a warning wasn't enough. She asked Counselor D. Elder to accompany her in order to quiet down the kids. Now, in the dark, behind tent 1, uh, and two, the, there was two tents next to each other, one and two. In the dark back there, Carla heard a weird sound. She explained it as a guttural sound or a moan coming from the woods. Now, she thought it was probably just an animal. So Carla went and investigated the noise. She moved her flashlight in the general direction of the sound, but it, it stopped. So she quickly brushed it off and turned to head back to her tent. But as soon as the light was pointed in the opposite direction, the sound started again. So she went back to check, but it stopped. So thinking it was some nighttime animal rolling around through the trees, she just returned back to her tent without a second thought. She later recalled how she could still hear the noise once she tucked herself into bed. With everyone tucked away, it seemed odd to the campers in tent seven when a light quickly approached their door. The light flooded the tent, and one camper noticed through squinted eyes in the dark the figure of a man standing in the entryway. Hmm. The man quickly disappeared back into the darkness, and the camper went back to sleep without a second thought. Meanwhile, another reported hearing screams in the middle of the night asking for their mom. Hmm. Counselors would chalk it up to first-night jitters and, and anxiety, but when the sun rose, Carla got up early around 6 a.m. to get a shower in before breakfast and before the campers were up and out of bed. On her walk to the bathrooms, she noticed sleeping bags a little away from, a little away from uh, the tent on the outside. Now, it was odd since all of the children were still asleep, hmm. but she headed over to investigate. Now, upon closer examination, it was actually three sleeping bags rather than just one. On top of the open sleeping bag was the body of Denise, while inside the other two were bodies of Lori and Michelle. The counselor quickly ran to go get help. The news of the murders spread quickly amongst staff. I bet. Now, this information, it was not only shocking, but absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Someone had invaded the camp, and the counselor's had no idea. We killed them right there under their nose. Yep. <sighs> the directors scrambled on where to turn next. Now, everyone was kept in the dark. When the girls were shuttled back to Tulsa only after one night, the families actually were really concerned. Hmm. The only information made available was that an accident had occurred. Hmm. Uh, nothing Wait. violent, though. What? The statement was an accident occurred, but it was nothing violent. I, I think that's interesting. They said it was nothing violent? Mm -hmm. Holy yeah, fuck. when they made the statement, they said an accident has occurred, but nothing violent. I think people should just tell them fucking truth, goddammit. Which is weird. You know, if, if my girls, if I had a daughter and she came back from Girl Scout camp uh, after one night and said, yeah, there was an accident, but it was nothing violent. Three I'd be girls like, were killed. I would be like... Why did you throw that in there? Yeah. Why yeah. did you say there was an accident, oh. but it's not violent? Hmm. Yeah. You know, it, 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 anyways. I get you. I get you. People don't want to tell the truth about those kind of things sometimes. I mean, they'll come out anyway. But. Right, right. So by 10 a.m., the campers were back at home while law enforcement descended upon the camp. 
Mays County Sheriff Glenn Weaver was assigned to the case alongside the district attorney, Sid Wise. The bodies were found nearly 150 yards from their tent on the side of a trail that ran along the Keogh unit. The girls were bludgeoned before being strangled to death. The Kioi unit was positioned furthest to the left of the camp, and the view of tent number eight happened to be obstructed by the bathrooms. This trail near the unit led to the back gate of the camp. Now, it was reported both the main and back gates were locked at 11 p.m., but it wasn't difficult to bypass. There wasn't an actual fence placed around the entire perimeter of the camp, so it was easily accessible. Plus, the camp had no security at night at either gate. So quickly, investigators noticed several pieces of evidence. Duct tape was found on the girls along with the roll it appeared to come from. Near the bodies, rope was also found alongside a pair of women's eyeglasses with a case and a red flashlight. Hmm. Now, it was interesting. When I was doing research and when I heard about this case, I come from um, a later time, so when I'm thinking flashlight, I'm thinking, you know, the little handheld torches. Mm -hmm. This is a 1977 flashlight, 1970s. So it was a box with a handle on it. It looked like a lunchbox with a giant. Okay. Okay. I'm with you. It's got Scooby-Doo on the side. No, it doesn't. (laughs) There's a thermos inside. It's big. It looks giant. Right. So when I look through the, the crime photos, the information, it's this huge ass fucking box. It's weird. So... It was determined that the red flashlight had been altered in a way to reduce light and sound. Now, tape was actually placed over the lens to reduce the amount of light that was emitted. Mm. While inside the flashlight casing, there were several pages of newspaper. The intent was to prevent the battery from rattling with movement. Mm. The newspaper pages were from Section C, pages 5 through 12 of the Tulsa World, and appeared to be from an issue dated April 17, 1977. Inside of the tent, it was nearly impossible to find something without at least a drop of blood on it. The tent flaps, parts of the floor, and the mattress were the worst. It appeared part of the tent had been broken during the attack. Upon further investigation of the floor, detectives noticed a shoe print in blood. Allegedly, another print was found outside the tent, but this one was not made from the same shoe. It was theorized that Lori and Michelle were more than likely lost their lives inside the tent, while Denise was either carried or forced to walk to the location where the girls were found. Hmm. It appeared the assailant tried to clean up spots where the blood had fallen prior to leaving. Near the perimeter of the camp, authorities recovered a crowbar and beer bottles. They believe the crowbar to be the murder weapon. Three fingerprints were found on the bodies, but all were partial prints. The search spread beyond the camp and would lead investigators into several nearby locations. More notably, this included caves that sat tucked away in the woods near the camp and a ranch close by. Fuck, they thought he was sitting in caves, this Mm -hmm. murderer? That's creepy. So the Schroff Ranch was about seven miles from Camp Scott and was owned by Jack Schroff. When investigators arrived, Schroff provided an alibi for the date in question. He also added that a week prior to the murders, his ranch had actually been the target of a break-in. The perpetrator didn't steal anything of value, though. Just food, a roll of tape, some beer, and a rope. Oh, wow. 
The rope found at the ranch was very similar to the one found near the girls, indicating the perpetrator may have been the same person who burglarized the ranch. Hmm. The caves revealed much more. As stated, the caves were not noticeable. Unless you were familiar with the area, you may not have known they were even there. Hmm. Now, inside one of these caves were the packaging for several food items, uh, newspapers from the same edition of the Tulsa World, two pictures, photographs, duct tape matching the one found at the camp, and a message scribbled on the wall of the cave that said, quote, the killer was here. Bye-bye, fools. Oh, shit. End quote. Now, someone, it appeared someone had been living there for at least a few days, and it was here in the caves that Weaver finally caught a break in the case. The photographs were much more telling. Weaver was able to trace them to a man who developed them while serving time in the Granite Reformatory. His name was Gene Leroy Hart, and he was now their prime suspect. Hart was born on November 27, 1943, in Locust Grove, Oklahoma. Now, growing up, Hart was a well-known athlete in the small town, specifically for his agility on the football field. However, he also became well-known by the authorities. From a young age, he started acting out and committing petty offenses, but his first huge crime was committed in June of 1966. Hart was hanging around outside a Tolson nightclub when he noticed two pregnant women in the parking lot. He abducted both of the women, nice. drove them out to an isolated spot in Mays County where he assaulted them. Jesus. He also stole both their glasses before discarding the women and leaving the scene. Now, thankfully, both of these women survived the attack. Allegedly, Hart had developed poor eyesight and he refused to go to the eye doctor. He needed glasses so he would steal whoever's he could find in hopes to find a match for his eyes <laughs> so he could see. Wow. Now Hart <laughs> was apprehended shortly after this attack where he was charged with kidnapping and assault on both women. He was only behind bars for a few months before being paroled though, hmm. which this, this this part of all the stories just irritates me. Always happens, right? Now, while on parole, he started to break into homes when the owners weren't there. So he'd look around, find um, empty houses, you know, and maybe they're at work or whatever. And he'd break in and he'd steal shit. Hmm. Now, he wasn't caught until his fourth robbery when he broke into the home of a Tulsa police officer. Nice. While he, he was in there. <laughs> no, he wasn't home, oh, but it was an officer's house. Mm. He was arrested again, and this time convicted on four counts of burglary because he was already on parole. He violated the terms of that and mm. instead was sentenced to the maximum of 350 years in prison. Jeez. So it was the burglaries while he was on parole and then the assault and, and kidnapping and all that. Now, after only doing a few years of the sentence... Hart managed to escape custody in 1973. Hmm. Now, while at a hearing in the May County Courthouse, he slipped away from the guards. However, he was quickly caught and returned to jail. Hmm. But upon his return, he escaped a second time. Shit. And this escape lasted much longer. Now, Weaver compared the known evidence from the camp massacre to Hart, and all signs seemed to point in his direction. 
law enforcement started an urgent search in order to get him back behind bars. Realizing the type of ground they needed to cover, Sheriff Weaver called upon the help of a group of search dogs from Pennsylvania. Now, this is this is weird. It was rumored that a local medicine man placed a curse on the dogs, stating that they would die if they were out to track heart. Hmm. Now, it's unclear how or why this came to be, but yeah, oddly, right. two of the dogs actually died <laughs> oh in the search process, which is weird. Now, the hunt for heart was long and exhausting. Now, authorities contradicted each other when it came to releasing information to the media regarding the case, but after 10 long months, Hart was finally arrested. On April 6, 1978, police received a tip from an informant that Hart was hiding out in a residence in Cookson Hills, located 45 miles from the camp. He was taken into custody without issue. Well, that was until the locals caught wind of his arrest. Hart was known around town and, oddly, had a really large support group believing he was innocent. Really? But Sheriff Weaver didn't let that deter him from trying to connect Hart to the murders of the girls. His DNA was recovered and tested, even though they only had a partial profile of the perpetrator. This testing could not definitively connect Hart to the scene, but it couldn't rule him out either. Hmm. Based on this, Weaver charged him with the murders of all three girls. Hart's trial took place in Mays County, a, a blessing in disguise for Hart, actually. The trial lasted for days, and then even it even drew national attention with the courtroom being packed out every day. Hmm. During trial, new information was revealed. Apparently, the camp had been the target of some threats, which included slashed tents, burglaries and a note warning the incoming campers of impending danger really yep however none of this information was disclosed by the camp prior to opening for that summer yeah they did not want to be honest no, with this whole situation it just it just is obnoxious the defense felt that this omission was evidence enough to prove that there were problems way before Hart or the girls the incident with the girls hmm. prosecutors didn't have much to prove his guilt either all evidence that could connect Hart was circumstantial evidence at best. Right. So basically nothing definitive. So at the end of March 1979, the jury acquitted Hart on all charges related to the deaths of the girls. However, he was not a free man as he was arrested once again right away. And this time they sent him to the state penitentiary in McAllister, Oklahoma, to finish out his original three, <laughs> oh, 350 right. year sentence. That's right. But Hart was only imprisoned for three months before he died on June 4th, 1979, due to a heart attack at the age of 35. Sheesh. Yeah. So yeah. evidently he died in the exercise yard of a heart attack. Well, did I, he fake his own death or something? What I happened? Don't, I don't know. It's just. Is there more to this guy's story? Is this the end? It's sketchy. Oh, yeah. um, now, Weaver along with many law enforcement officers, believe without a doubt that Hart was responsible for these crimes. However, they believed he didn't act alone, right. although they couldn't find a way to prove this. In 1996, a private investigator named Ted Lawturner acquired a petition for a grand jury to review some leads that he dug up in his investigation. During his time of reviewing the case, Ted claimed he had three potential suspects and a witness. However, none of the suspects were Hart. The witness later redacted their statement, 
and Ted's theory was tossed out by law enforcement. But Ted claimed three men were just as capable of this crime, uh, aside from Hart. Hmm. So these suspects, potential suspects, included Sonny James, Frank Justice, and Bill Stevens. All of these men had run-ins with the law and were said to have had connections to Hart. Allegedly, on the morning of the murders, Stevens was seen at a cafe near the camp with blood on his boots, and he acted really erratically, but nothing ever came of this. He was arrested several months later on charges of assault and kidnapping. Even during Hart's trial, a woman testified that the flashlight found at the scene belonged to Stevens. Hmm. Stevens' name came up during the trial a few times, but his DNA didn't match. Hmm. So he ultimately was ruled out as a suspect. Yeah, but this is 70s and 80s DNA that we're dealing this with. This is, yeah, the, the, D, the DNA sample. This was blood typing that they did at that time. Okay. Um, and at best, it's not the DNA that we have right. now. It's not that, that type of DNA. Right. So ultimately, it didn't match up with him. And I'm assuming what they're meaning is maybe blood typing. Blood type, yeah. yeah. So ultimately, he was ruled out as a suspect. The same went for the other two, Justice and James. There was nothing to connect them to the crime, despite the rumors and theories. Hart was the only person to be formally charged in the murders, but it still technically remains unsolved. Mm -hmm. But until recently, hmm. okay? So with technology advancements and decades of work, the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation announced in 2022 they are ready to close the case. Okay. In 1989, a sample found on Michelle's pillow was submitted to the FBI lab for testing, but due to degradation, a full DNA profile could not be obtained. It was only a partial profile. Hart's known DNA was compared to this partial profile, and he could not be excluded as a suspect. Hmm. Then, in 2019, at the behest of the victim's families, the new sheriff, Mike Reed, submitted the DNA once again. He didn't go public with the details until last year, in 2022. Mm. And this was after the families gave him their blessing to release the information. Mm. Quote, a full DNA profile still isn't possible, but it doesn't mean what we do have is useless, says Reed. His department took the partial profile and used it to instead eliminate DNA collected from the large number of suspects questioned in this case. Initially, there were 130 suspects questioned, and over time, DNA was collected from the potentials who could not be ruled out. This latest round of testing eliminated several people who were still considered potential suspects. In fact, Reed stated, quote, There's no suspect attached to this case that has not been excluded in one way or another, whether it's DNA, whether it's alibi, a polygraph test, whatever, except for Hart, end quote. This last round of testing couldn't eliminate Hart, whose DNA matched the partial profile. Fuck. So for Reed, evidence points to Hart, and he remains positive the departments involved will move forward and officially close this case. But since it hasn't happened as of yet, he's still open to any information anyone might have that pertains to the case. Well, they still think he might have had an accomplice, right? Well, that that is something. It's a potential. Mm. It's it's interesting 
the challenge that they have with this is it's it's difficult for them to imagine how one man in the middle of a Girl Scout camp can abduct three little girls. Yeah, without, without waking everyone. Exactly. And- how is he? I mean, he would have to kill two and then remove one. But then he drug the other two out into the woods. It just... It's yeah, very strange. It so they strange. they really think there was more than one person involved. However, the DNA profile doesn't match any of the known suspects except for, for Hart. Hart. Yeah, and well, and it was you know and degraded. He, sta- he stayed in that cave. Yeah, and it was the cave mm-hmm. in the walls that said, "I was here and I killed him." Basically. Right. See, it's all very that, circumstantial. Yeah. Right. That would be tough. To- so. For the families, the night their nightmare never ended, yeah, basically. So for, for Michelle's father, he joined a group called Compassionate Friends. Compassionate Friends was a support group composed of uh, local parents who had lost their children also. Michelle's parents were livid with the way the Girl Scouts handled their daughter's murder. Okay. I would be too. Yeah, I would be like too. It. The council never told them what happened to Michelle. And they had to learn the horrific details from the freaking news. Mm. Michelle also died the day before their wedding anniversary. Now, Mm. this is a day they no longer celebrate. Mm. Denise's mother reported after her daughter's death, she couldn't go visit the grave since it only reminded her of the pain and suffering she knew her child had to endure. For Lori's parents, it was pretty similar to the other families. Her father was the director of the emergency room at Tulsa St. John Medical Center. And at the time, he remembered the day very clearly when he got the call. He said, quote, it was from the executive director of the Girl Scouts. I found out later that we were the third people they called. First, they called their insurance company. Mm-hmm. And then they called their attorney. Mm-hmm. And then they called us, end quote. They, too, were never given information about how grisly the situation was. Sherry, Lori's mother, became an outspoken advocate for victims, and on what would have been Lori's 16th birthday, she founded the Oklahoma chapter of Parents of Murdered Children. Hmm. In 1984, the parents of Denise and Lori worked together to sue the Magic Empire Council of Girl Scouts of America. They lost their case and appealed for a second time in 1985, which... They also lost as well. Hmm. Camp Scott, the home of many Girl Scouts for over 50 years, never reopened after that and still remains closed and abandoned today. Goddamn. That's the story. That's the story. Uh, Very interesting because essentially, as far as law enforcement's concerned, it's solved. Right. I mean, it's solved. Yeah. But well, let's talk about it on the other side of this thing. On the thing. Well, that was fucking terrible. What do our dipshits think? All right. Well, thank you for all that research. Oh, yeah. You're welcome. Going down that dark road. Yeah. I do remember th- uh, doing something on that story mm-hmm. a long time ago, but I didn't remember the details that well. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's a lot of detail that I didn't include here on purpose. Right. There are so many true crime podcasts mm-hmm. out there and uh, vlog, video vlogs I guess I'm not sure and shows and, yeah. yeah if you want the detail look it up and read it I have done it a few times here where I tried to get I try to give as much detail as I could mm-hmm. I, I don't like saying those words I bet I just especially when it comes to children yeah so uh, they were uh, bludgeoned and strangled period 
Yeah, <laughs> and there's there's more information out there if you guys would like to hear it. I just can't. I, the research is hard enough. I don't want to say the words. Fair. Fair. <laughs> Essentially, this case um, is technically technically solved, but not. They can't close it all out quite yet. Um, and what they're waiting for is an, is they want to find one other person that knows. They really are they trying to find everything is basically circumstantial evidence. Yeah. That's that's what they've got. There's not enough evidence. So in uh, in a lot of ways, the police did this investigation. It wasn't a botched investigation, but it was a. Uh, minorly bungled <laughs> right well they didn't have the technology to do maybe what they were trying to no, do they, they probably didn't. didn't keep track of the 1977 they they got fingerprints they got all kinds of evidence however for some reason the dna evidence was degraded hmm. so and Man, I, we can look at dinosaurs and shit and they fuck well, come on i know well there's there's a but lot it of did its job it pointed out it everyone did. that wasn't it, that's exactly it so everyone on that suspect list that could potentially uh be a suspect Clear everyone was cleared Although, except for Hart. Except Hart's, for him except for him but that's only one source of because i mean if there were two of them mm-hmm. you know there would have to be multiple sources of dna for them to be able to well, they'd have to leave their DNA. Right. That's so just that, it. So there is, you know. They would have to either bleed or leave a body fluid of some kind. Right. And they only found one hmm. source. One. But this was 1977, you know, and, and, and I don't know how detailed they were able to get. I know they were blood typing at that time. Yeah. So. Did the thing on the wall say the killer? It said the killer was here, mm-hmm. right? The killer single. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, hmm. Bye-bye, fools. Yeah. <laughs> Cocky son of a bitch. Yeah. Didn't get away with it, actually, no. but for a while. Well, he died at the age of 35 in yeah. prison, in the prison yard. That sounds weird, Isn't too. Isn't that strange? It does. He's an That's athlete. Strange. Yeah. I want to know more about what happened there. He was 35 years old. He was an athlete. Apparently, he was in great shape. Not that great. Uh, loved in the community. There's a whole... Weird. Individual... There's a whole group of folks that were screaming that the police were trying to pin a murder on this guy Mm -hmm. and he didn't do it. So Hmm. that was part of the pushback from the town. There's a, the the city, a lot of people loved him. What did he, what was he doing? Well, I don't know why they loved him. Yeah, he's a burglar. He was a rapist. He was, and he sang beautifully in the choir. He's a kidnapper. He's our only tenor. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know why. So either he didn't do those crimes either but he did because the two women were left alive and they said, that's the guy. Yeah. So weird. I know it's a very, this planet just seems like it loves irony. I know it really does. Right. It likes to rub things in our faces. Like mm-hmm. you thought you thought one thing, but it's mm-hmm. not that it's right. What you thought it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> fuck faces. It's like, God damn, we're trying our best planet. Right. Come on. Come on. Cut us some fucking slack. Anyways. Yeah. Yep. So, that's the story. Well, that was, I don't want to say it was fun, but thank you for telling us. The You're story. welcome. And thank You're you welcome. for yeah, scaring all the people that have Girl Scouts and stuff. Well, <laughs> that's, I see, I remember I have specific memories of Girl Scout camp. My very first year, because it's always brownies mm-hmm. and then it was a Girl Scouts. And my first year of Girl Scout camp was my first year as a Girl Scout. Mm-hmm. And I remember selecting my little campsite. We didn't have cabins. 
So when I went in, let's see, this was in 1980, I think it was 83. Okay. I had a tent that I slept in. We slept by ourselves in our own tents. And we got to set our tents up around this little area. And I remember... Little bear treats for everybody. It comes in a little box. <laughs> I remember it was in uh, Ben Lomond. I think it's Ben Lomond, California, out by Santa Cruz. Hmm. And I remember being in my tent and writing my letters, just like these little girls, right. laying on my sleeping bag, telling my parents, because they, they suggested, they encouraged that every night, because they wanted you, they told you to bring stamps with you hmm. in 1983. Right. I think it was 83, maybe it was even 82. It doesn't matter. Anyways, um, <laughs> it matter. so it was, I was in like the third fourth grade because third grade was brownies anyways so yeah writing letters <laughs> mailing that shit off and it just reminds me i remember getting there the first day i remember the first day jitters being afraid of these little girls i totally could relate to because yeah, when i was in the girl scouts i was 10 just like these little girls mm -hmm. so it was interesting to me when i stumbled across this of course it was oklahoma but so much of this case and the the pictures taken of the surroundings, it just reminded me so much of my Girl Scout camp, camp experience. Yeah. yeah, I bet a, a few people listening probably felt the same mm -hmm. way. I mean, as a Cub Scout and a Boy Scout, mm -hmm. we did a lot of camping mm -hmm. like that. They, we didn't necessarily have those kind of camps. Where it was a big old thing. But mm -hmm. we didn't sell no cookies to get there. Uh, just sucks that they. Yeah. they you, there's people out there that will ruin these sorts of things and ruin trust. And I imagine that Girl Scouts of America, if they still exist, they have better security at all. To the things. best of my knowledge, they definitely still exist. Good. Um, I, I know the cookies still exist, mm -hmm. but you know how things right? work. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it is. And <laughs> I'm sure that there's excellent security now. And whenever they do those because of this case. Well, yeah, there, so. would, there would have to be. There would have to be. I would hope so. Yeah. All right. Well, shit. Thank you. You're very welcome. And thank you guys for listening. We appreciate the shit out of all of you. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you to our trusted turd triad, to our trusted turd herders, mm -hmm. to our scat meme army, some mm -hmm. of the greatest humans on the earth doing their thing for us, and we appreciate it so much. But thank you for doing the research. Mm -hmm. Thank you guys for heck, uh, helping us out on Patreon. Yeah. Info at scatcast.com is how to get a hold of us. Last couple of weeks have been kind of mm -hmm. rough for Monique and I mm -hmm. because it's been uh, icky time, mm -hmm. but we're getting through there. So yeah. thank you for... Forgive my voice if it breaks during this episode oh, or if I great. sound all, you know, you did nasally. I'm getting over being sick, so... Yeah. I thought it was awesome. Well, thank you. I didn't notice the whole time and I was sitting here next to you. <laughs> all right, but thank you guys for listening. As always, we'll talk at you in the future. And it'll seem like the present. Bye. Bye. Shit files. Bing. Honk. What? Fucking honk. Honky bings. <laughs>